What a beautiful song. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every corner. This is God's holy, inspired inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? There was once a man from India named John Cargamon. John was diagnosed with leprosy at the age of six. In India, like many other countries around the world throughout history, the law required that lepers report themselves to the proper authorities for registration, which oftentimes meant quarantine, total isolation. In Hawaii, for example, The act to prevent the spread of leprosy was enacted in 1965, and this act required that any person diagnosed with leprosy would have to report to the leper colony on the island of Malokai, and this was for life. John's parents were afraid of registering John in India with the proper authorities for fear of losing him to that very thing, to a leper colony, but they were also afraid of his infectious disease. So... John's father built him a special room attached to their already very tiny house in the poor suburbs of India. And it was there that John would eat and bathe and play and sleep. John, from a very early age, from his first diagnosis, had no contact with the world outside of this little room, including the world of his family. When a normal child might fall ill with a stomach virus, and receive a parent's tender care, a mom's gentle touch, the washcloth on the forehead of the sick child, John received none. Hugs and kisses and cuddles were not known by John from his parents or his aunts or his uncles or his grandma or his grandpa after his diagnosis. Whereas most children in John's town would go out and race tires down the road, pushing them with sticks, or have dirt-clawed fights in the street. John was relegated to watching the other children play in the streets through the cracks of his tiny room. When local boys would be swimming naked in the river on a hot summer's day, John would have a bucket brought to him so that he might bathe in the seclusion of this tiny room. This room was John's world. John was a lonely child. 
It's not difficult to imagine how such an experience can turn a person, even a young person like John, into a walking ball of bitterness and angry and anger and resentment. Around the age of 12, John began to act out. He began to act out by treating his parents poorly, his brothers and sisters would, with contempt. John would sometimes at night leave the confines of his quarters, risking his health, his parents' safety, and the safety of others in the streets just because he wanted to escape the room. Soon thereafter, John would begin to act out in serious fits of rage. His family finally got to the point where they felt like they had to remove him for the good of the home and for John's own good as well. And so they did. They traveled to a leper clinic in a neighboring state, three days' journey away. Upon arrival to the clinic, John's parents took him into the makeshift examination room, told him to wait here. The doctor will be in in a moment. They went outside and they promptly left, returning home, abandoning John. It was at this clinic that John met Dr. Paul Brand, one of the Christian doctors that the parents were sure, because they were good Christians, would take care of their boy if they left him there. Dr. Brand was a Christian doctor, a missionary, and a leprologist, which means he studied leprosy. And when Dr. Brand entered the room, he could see that John was afraid. John looked more like a, a, a scared animal than a child. Dr. Brand introduced himself to the boy and told him that he was there to help. The boy smiled. But when the boy smiled, it looked more like a sneer because three-quarters of his upper lip was gone and his right eye could no longer open. Dr. Brand went in and told John after searching the parking lot, realizing that his parents weren't there, that he would be staying with them for the time. He told him not to worry that he had cared for many other young boys in John's similar condition, that he would be well cared for. As Dr. Brand explained everything to John, the boy seemed almost entirely devoid of emotion. He just sat there, not blinking, not moving. After that initial smile, there was nothing. Finally, at the end of their conversation, Dr. Brand approached the young boy, John, now around the age of 13, and he placed his hand on John's shoulder. And when he touched John's shoulder, he began to cry. John began to cry intensely, convulsing. He couldn't contain himself. Dr. Brand thought the boy was crying because he was scared, because his parents had left him. He thought the boy was crying because he was sad, because he had no family. It wasn't until many years later that to Dr. Brand realized John was actually crying because that was the first time in nearly seven years that he had felt the touch of another human being. He had forgotten what it was like to be touched and to be loved by human contact. The form of leprosy that John had in India may or may not have been the skin disease that the leper from today's text carried, but the life of a leper in India in the 1930s or the life of a leper in Galilee in 30 AD would have been equally hard, very difficult. The term that we see in our text today that is leper was actually kind of this junk drawer term that the Bible uses for kind of any kind of skin disease or contagious disease related to the skin. Scribes in the days of Jesus actually calculated about 72 different diseases that would have fallen under the category of leprosy according to Levitical law. 
That would have ranged anything from ringworm to a rash to what we now know of as leprosy, where people tend to lose limbs and facial features. And under the Old Covenant, anyone with a skin disease was separated from the people of God until it could be verified that he or she had been cleansed from their skin disease, whether naturally or supernaturally. And if healing were not possible, the leper would remain outside of the camp, separate from God's people. The leper would have been separated physically, emotionally, and socially from God's people. Physically, the leper would have been cut off from his people in almost every way. Now, the primary purpose of this leper being separated from the people of God was due to the fact that prior to modern medicine, it was hard to know which diseases were contagious and which diseases weren't. It was preventative cure, a way to keep the rest of the people of God from being infected with whatever disease the leper may have had. It wasn't actually until the 20th century that modern doctors and scientists found out that what we now know of as leprosy isn't actually even contagious by human touch, but rather through bacteria in the soil. Leviticus 13 is a chapter in your Bibles that deals with how to handle these things, leprosy, and so on and so forth. And this is what it says the leprous person is to do when they enter in amongst God's people. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside of the camp. As you can see, the leprous man or woman would not have easily made friends. Walking around, clothes torn, hair hanging loose, disheveled. Everywhere you go, you see a person, you have to yell, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Not not, not really helpful there, making friends. Not only did the leper have to live by himself outside of the camp, but he actually had to go about announcing his condition everywhere he went. Socially, the effects of such a disease are obvious. The leper has no family. If he did have a family, he has to be separated from them for their own good. The leper has no friends other than perhaps other lepers who were outside of the camp with him. For some lepers, this would have only been temporary. It would have been that they had to stay outside of the camp until whatever skin disease that they had cleared up. When I first got to Peru as a missionary, we lived in the jungle, and I had a big, massive beard. And a weird, I don't know what, began to grow on my face. I don't know what it was, but it itched, and it began to make my face bleed. So I had to shave my beard and apply alcohol to my face three times a day to dry it out. After a couple weeks, it went away. That was temporary. I still would have had to go outside of the camp. And as difficult as it may be to have mandatory isolation, some of these people would have had skin diseases that never went away. They would have permanently had to be living outside of the camp. Spiritually, the leper was viewed as unclean for some biblical reasons and for some unbiblical reasons. The main biblical reason is that a person with leprosy or any other deformity could not enter into the temple. Now, that may seem somewhat insensitive to us, but it's entirely consistent. It's in keeping with God's command, His trying to teach His people to be holy as He is holy, to be pure as He is pure, to be unmixed as He's unmixed. So whether it's the, the, the Hebrews not being able to wear clothes with mixed fabrics in them, or a lamb without blemish that has to be sacrificed before the altar, God was trying to consistently communicate a message to His people, and that was a message of His holiness. And therefore, since he was, they were his people, 
It was a message about their holiness. One of the reasons that we talk so much about how we live our lives as Christians is because we are God's people. We reflect God on this earth. And God is a holy God. And doesn't it make sense that when the world looks at us, they should see a holy people who belong to a holy God? But the lepers of Jesus' day would have also been spiritually segregated for other more sinful and stupid reasons. The main reason being that people in those days tended to associate on a one-to-one basis sickness with sin. Now you may be thinking, Sean, people still say that today. You're right. We are still stupid as we ever were. But the fact is, we are sick for many, any number of reasons, some of which may involve sin, we bring sickness about our, upon ourselves for our own stupidity, but for other reasons that are entirely unrelated to our sin. But whether it's the blind man sitting by the pool in the Gospel of John, or Job's friends arguing with him about his sickness and his boils and the death of his family, the Bible is full of fallen humans stupidly trying to correlate bad things happening to people in a fallen world on a one-to-one basis. Therefore, this leper would have likely not only been viewed as the unfortunate recipient of a disease, but also as a terrible sinner who brought that disease on himself. Imagine this man. Try to get him in your minds. Clothes torn, hair long, hanging loose, likely unclean, unbathed. No friends, no family, no nothing. Spiritually, physically, socially separated from his people. Desperate, broken, alone. And then he hears about Jesus. He hears that the supposed Messiah has arrived. Maybe he doesn't know if Jesus really is the Messiah. There's been a bunch of different people claiming to be the Messiah. But word about Jesus' ability to heal has spread. And he believes that Jesus can heal him. And so he runs to Jesus. In his desperation, he finds Jesus and he boldly approaches him. In verse 40, it reads, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Now, the mere fact that this man approaches Jesus shows you his desperation. It was in the law of God that a person with leprosy not approach another person. On top of that, it was part of the rabbinical law that a person with leprosy not approach within 50 feet of anyone, of any healthy person. But this leper, he's desperate. He is desperate, and he disregards both of those, and he runs to Jesus. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. These words are telling. The man says, if you are willing, you can. You see, he acknowledges that Jesus is able to heal him, but what he's doubting is whether or not Jesus is willing to heal him. In these leper's words, the leper's words, we see faith and doubt. We see the same faith and doubt that are present in all of us when we trust in Jesus. Whether it's Peter denying Christ by the fireside, or denying the gospel as he eats with Judaizers, or whether it's Thomas who says, I have to touch his side before I can believe. Or whether it's the father of the sick boy in Mark chapter 9, which we're going to get to later, who says, Lord, I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. Any one of these show us what it's like to believe in Jesus in this fallen world. We're always wrestling with a mixture of faith and doubt. 
Some of us doubt the ability of God. Others of us doubt the willingness of God. Sometimes we doubt equal parts. But friends, we should never doubt God's willingness to do us good. God is not pleased with our sin. God is not pleased with our sickness or the state of this fallen world. It's true, in His wisdom, He allows this world to keep spinning the way that it does. He allows the sin to exist. He's superintending the bad things that happen in this world, like sickness, like this man's disease. But that doesn't mean that He is in any way pleased by it. His heart is to do His people good especially if we approach him the way that this leper approaches Jesus in today's text. Verse 40 says that the leper came to him and it says that he was imploring him. That is, he was begging him and kneeling. The leper recognizes his lowly state. He recognizes his utter desperation, his total inability. He knows that there's no hope outside of Jesus. So he runs to him and he kneels at his feet and he begs him. Friends, you should know that Jesus will heal all who come to him in that fashion. I don't mean to say that he will necessarily heal you physically. Sometimes we should pause and consider the fact that God allows us to remain with our physical infirmities that we might learn to trust him more, that we might learn to be dependent upon him. God may actually be teaching us something by allowing us to remain with the brokenness of our bodies. The main thing being that we are not God's we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. This body will one day go away. And the only thing that will be left will be eternal. You'll have a renewed body. But until you get that renewed body, you need help. You need help in remembering that this body is not the last body that you were created for. He will heal all spiritually who come to him in this way. Any man who comes broken to the feet of Jesus, throwing himself on the mercy of Christ, will receive that mercy. Now, what I do not mean to say is that if you ask Jesus into your heart, he will absolutely do it. What I do not mean to say is that if the pastor calls you to walk down an aisle and you raise your hand when you get to the front of the aisle, that Jesus has saved you. What I do not mean to say is that if someone leads you in a prayer where you repeat after them, that you will be saved. What I mean to say is, whether you're walking down an aisle, or whether you're praying, or raising your hand in a tent revival, or sitting in the privacy of your own bedroom reading your Bible under the conviction of sin, the power and willingness of God to save you, to save me, to save us, to save the world, is not dependent upon our outward actions, but our inward brokenness. The desires of the Lord are a broken and contrite heart. Whatever form, whatever expression that happens to take is somewhat inconsequential. Jesus' response to this man is perhaps one of the greatest testaments to his divinity in the entire Bible. And again, I think I said that last week, and I mean it this week. The leper sits before him, and Jesus touches him. Jesus touches the leper. It's as if Jesus doesn't care about his sickness. Touching lepers is something you don't do. Physically, you don't touch a leper because you don't want to get what they have. 
Socially, you don't touch a leper because if you touch them, you're breaking social norms. And now people aren't going to want to be around you even if you didn't get sick. Spiritually, and most importantly, you don't touch a leper because now you're ceremonially unclean, unable to offer sacrifices to your God. But Jesus touches the leper. Jesus touches the leper. It's as if Jesus isn't worried about the contagions. It's as if Jesus isn't worried about social stigmas. It's as if Jesus isn't worried about anyone being ceremonially unclean, himself included. And when Jesus touches this man, it's efficacious. The man is made whole. Verse 42 says, And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. One pastor speaking about this passage says, Jesus is not polluted by the leper's contagious sickness. Rather, the leper is healed by Jesus' contagious holiness. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read of a man called Naaman. Naaman was a mighty warrior of Syria. A mighty warrior of Syria. But Naaman was also a leper. And in Naaman's household, they had a slave girl. And the slave girl one day was talking to Naaman's wife. And she said, hey, there's a guy in Israel who can heal Naaman of that leprosy. The text reads, uh, sorry, so sorry, sorry, my bad. So in response to that little girl, he gets permission from the king of Syria to go, to go to Israel, to talk to this prophet, to get healed. And he gets a letter, and he takes a letter to the king of Israel, and the letter from the king of Israel reads, when this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, this is how he responded. He tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how this man is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Israel, he thought that the king of Syria was picking a fight with him. There's a letter from the king saying, Hey, here's my servant. Can you heal him? Will you heal him for me? And the king of Israel goes, I can't heal him. I'm not God. I'm just a king. That's a heck of a thing for a king to say. But when the king confesses that, he acknowledges that only God has the power to heal men of leprosy. And here in today's verses, that's exactly what we see. We see that God takes away this man's leprosy. God, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, with a single touch, heals this man of his brokenness. And then so, he shows himself to be greater than everyone and everything, including the priests. Under biblical law, the priests would have to verify any cases of healing, whether they were supernatural or natural. If a person had a leprous disease and it went away, they would have to go to the priest and they would say, hey priest, look at man, the thing on my face, you know the mold that was growing under my beard? It's gone. And the priest would say, oh, okay, it is, good, pass, now do your ritual purification and you can go back to be with the people. Or he would say, no, I still see some of it. Go back out seven more days. Come see me again later. That's kind of what the priest did. He gave the yes or the no. But the priests were utterly powerless to actually do anything like heal the disease. Only God could do that. The law provided ritual purification for a man, but was powerless to actually heal a man of the underlying disease. I feel the weight of that is your pastor. I stand before you and I, I sometimes can render judgments on things, yes or no, but ultimately I can't do anything to change your hearts. 
I can't make you love God more. I can't make you stop watching pornography at night on your computer. I can't make you make wise dating decisions. I can't make you faithfully give to the support the ministry of this church. I can't make you go out and evangelize. I can't heal your heart. If you're in here and you're not converted, I can't bring your heart back to life. Only God can do that. Jesus knows the powerless of the priests. And as a sign to them, he sends the healed leper to go back to them. Now, in one sense, he's only doing what the law commands. He's telling this man, go to the, law, go to the Levites so that they can examine you. They'll clear you up. You're good to go. Go back to the people of God. You're free. But in another deeper sense, Jesus is having this man go so that they might be a witness to the priest. It's almost as if he's letting them know, hey, I'm here. Someone who is greater than you has arrived. I can actually take away the leprosy. This is what Jesus does. Jesus comes to bring cleansing to God's people. In the gospel, Jesus not only declares us righteous, but he actually makes us righteous through sanctification. In the gospel, God not only sees the purity of his son in us, but he also purifies us. In the gospel, Jesus restores us and renews us to the image of God that we were created in. He touches us, and immediately we are made clean. We're turned into new creations. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, various people teach us that that's not immediately perfection. You're not going to be perfectly holy. You're not going to be perfectly clean. You're not going to perfectly put sin to death while you still live in this body of flesh. But you will be cleaner than you were. And you will grow in your holiness. And you will grow in your sanctification. And you will look more like his son, Jesus Christ, than you did five years ago. I'm not saying you're not going to have ebbs and flows, highs and lows. I'm not saying that there's not going to be setbacks. That there's not going to be sins that you struggle with. Maybe even for the rest of your life. I'm talking about progress, not perfection. In the healing of this leper, you see the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell. See, you see, Jesus was willing to become ceremonially unclean to, to make this man clean. There's an exchange that takes place. In Galatians 3.13, we read of something similar. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is just a foreshadow of the gospel. This is what God does. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. His perfection is credited to our account. When Jesus touches us, his light consumes our darkness. When Jesus touches us, his holiness scrubs out our stains. And in touching this man, Jesus shows this man to be full of value and dignity and worth. Jesus loves this man. And a skin disease does not change that. The fact is that this man is still created in the image of God and nothing changes that. The leper likely doubted the willingness of God to heal him because he doubted his value, dignity, and worth. You see here, the leper didn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal him. He says, hey, I know you can do it, but will you do it? <clears throat> well, why would Jesus wonder whether or not Jesus was willing to cure him? Because he, he, li he likely saw himself in a lowly state, maybe not having any value, maybe not having any dignity, maybe not having any worth as an image bearer of God. That's what a disease like that can do to you. 
Maybe you think the same thing today. Maybe you think that you are unworthy of God's healing touch. Maybe you're doubting your value. You're doubting your dignity. You're doubting your worth. My point here is not to try to puff you up, to give you a self-esteem speech. That's from the world. That's from Satan. You're not, you know, like the perfect person. You, you don't have everything you need in you to be whatever you want. I know that you're not going to be whatever you set your mind to necessarily. As much as Will Stevenson may try, he will never be a professional NBA player. And that's just the end of it, no matter how much he really believes in himself. That's not the kind of value that I'm talking about. The value that I'm talking about says you are created in the image of God and nothing can take that away from you. Your age, your race, whether you're sick or healthy, even if you're in sin. Human beings are constantly going about trying to break the image of God that God created them in. But no matter how much we try to break the mirror of God's image, we still see partly God reflected in us because we are created in His image. And there's nothing we can do to change that. I used to preach every Sunday morning in the Morgan County Jail. And the reason why I did that is because I knew that nobody over there had committed any sin or committed any crime so severe that they were not worthy of being called image bearers of God. And there's some people over there who have done some very terrible things. Are you waiting to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ? What are you waiting for? Until you get better? Are you waiting until you get your act together? If you wait until you get your act together, you will never come to Christ because you will never get your act together. That's not your job. Your job is to trust in Jesus Christ and He will make you whole. He can and He will. Cast yourself at His feet. Cry out to Him like this leper. I promise you, He will take pity on you. The Word says, and He pitied Him. Now maybe you think you're not the kind of person who needs to be pitied. You think you're above that. You might even think that you're above being pitied by the God of the universe. Well, if that's the case, I promise you, you will still be pitied. But the pity that you receive may sound something more like it's a pity that he couldn't see the true state of his soul. It's a pity that she couldn't put her pride to death. It's a pity that they didn't realize it until it was too late. Perhaps as equally incredible as the healing of this leper is his response to Jesus. Jesus heals this man entirely of leprosy. Consider how this man responds, starting in verse 33. I did what I tell you guys to never do. I closed my Bible. No, not 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus commanded the man to be silent, to not say anything about his healing. Why is Jesus so stern about this? Why does he care so much about this man being silent? Why does he demand secrecy? Well, this isn't the first place you're going to see it. As we continue week in and week out to continue to study the book of Mark, you're going to see Jesus really seems to care a lot about people not saying too much about his deeds. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. 
One reason is that, well, there's three reasons, but I'm only going to talk about two today. One, Jesus knows that people will follow him for the wrong reasons. Jesus knows that people will follow him for the wrong reasons. In John 6.26, Jesus says this to the crowds of people who are following him. Jesus answered them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you sought signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knows the truth about our hearts. He knows that we are idolatrous. As one pastor later on would say, our hearts are like idol factories. Jesus knows that we exalt the gifts above the giver, that we're going to chase God for what he can give us rather than himself. You see that in churches, even in this city, the pastor gets up and he preaches, and he will stir a room of a thousand people up into excitement, talking about the things that God will give them rather than talking about God himself. People chase miracles. People chase bread. People chase excitement. But unless Jesus calls them, people do not chase Jesus. Which leads us to our second point. The following hordes bring too much attention to Jesus, which actually gets in the way of his ministry. So, the success of Jesus' ministry is getting in the way of Jesus' ministry. Jesus knows that perhaps the greatest, the, the greatest hindrance to his ministry is, is success, numerically speaking. It's a strange phenomenon. But as the crowds begin to gather around Jesus, as they begin to grow, they actually prevent him from doing the main thing that he was called to do, which was to preach the gospel. The leper is disobedient. He easily and comfortably disobeys Jesus' one command. He goes about speaking freely, spreading the news. And Mark tells us that as a result of that, Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town. If you remember last week's text, verse 39, Jesus says that he wanted to move on to the next town, that he might preach the gospel there also. Jesus went from town to town preaching the gospel, fulfilling the initial phase of his ministry plans. But once his fame grew... He had to act more like a celebrity fleeing the paparazzi than the Messiah that he was. We see here that Jesus is becoming famous for his healing activities, but the irony of it all, the irony of the fact that Jesus is famous for his healing activities is that because of his fame for his healing activities, he can't carry about his preaching activities, which is the thing that actually explains his healing activities. Jesus' preaching actually explains the significance of Jesus' miracles. But because of his miracles, he's not able to preach, therefore explain the miracles. Without preaching, the people won't be able to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish. When we read about Jesus telling people to be silent about his miracles, to not go off and tell anyone about signs and wonders that he did, I think that's a little strange for us, Right? It's all about going and telling somebody. And, you know, hey, go tell someone today what Jesus did for you. Amen? Maybe you guys didn't grow up in the same Southern Baptist church as I did. You know? Hey, brother, turn to your neighbor. Just tell somebody. Say it again for the person in the back. I mean, that's what we do as Christians. You even kind of see it biblically in the Great Commission. We go and we tell people. Well, I share my testimony with people as often as I can so I can tell people about Jesus and what he did in my life and what he did to save me. One of the reasons, hopefully, as this church grows and I continue to pastor this church, 
in 10 years, I'm going to have our story written out and so that I can continue to tell people about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us as a body. So why is Jesus telling people not to do that? Well, I think I've given you two reasons. But the real point of this is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why Jesus is telling people not to say anything. The point is, if Jesus tells us not to say anything, we don't say anything. We just need to trust and obey. Our impulses are not always right. Our impulse is, okay, I know Jesus told me not to go say anything, but I feel like Jesus would want me to say something, so I'm just going to go do it anyways. But our impulses are often so wrong. Are they not? They're not always right. And we should obey Jesus rather than our ideas about what feels right or what Jesus must be wanting or what must be right and true. Jesus had a reason for telling this man not to say anything. He had his own good and wise reasons. He didn't reveal it to the leper. He didn't say, hey man, listen, don't go say anything to anybody and let me tell you why. It's kind of complicated. Take a seat. Let me explain myself. Jesus is God. He doesn't have to explain himself. He commands and we obey. We would do well to not disobey Jesus because we think we know better than him. To think that we know best. A big part of sanctification is aligning our thoughts, what we think to be good, right, and true, with Jesus' thoughts. What he has actually declared to be good and right and true. Many of our children today are growing up in a hypersexualized world where they're being fed lies about gender and sexuality from every quarter. More so depending on what we're allowing them to be fed via media or in certain environments. Some children are going to grow up. Even now, the high school senior will say, you know what? A man and a man is perfectly okay. And the reason why I know is because I just know. I just know. I know that God is okay with that. As long as they love each other, God is okay. Talk with a woman recently divorced her husband. I know that God is okay with it because I just don't love him anymore. People just instinctually feel like they know what God is okay with, what Jesus would want for them. But Jesus has told us what he wants. He has told us what he is pleased with. We oftentimes assume that he is pleased with things that he hates. We also tend to assume that he hates the things that we hate, the things that we hate. You know, maybe if we're ultra-conservative, we tend to think that Jesus hates all Democrats. Or we, maybe we think he hates every member of PETA and Greenpeace as annoying as they are. We also tend to feel that Jesus is indifferent to the things that we're indifferent towards. Hey, you know what? I don't think baptism is that big of a deal. Baptize a baby, baptize an adult. kind of doesn't really matter for spreading the gospel. Jesus must not care. Or what about church polity, the way that we govern this church? Whether we have one elder or several elders or male elders or female elders or deacons, and we tend to say, you know what? That's not related to salvation. That's not important. But I think Jesus thinks that it's important. Church discipline just doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel kind. What if Jesus gave us church discipline as the ultimate way for us to love a brother or sister in Christ who is 
deceived about their sin and who is on their way to hell. The same can be said in our lives at home and in our efforts for personal holiness. Maybe you think that Jesus is okay with the entertainment that you consume. Maybe you think that just because everyone else is watching Game of Thrones that it's not that big of a deal. That Jesus is okay with pornography as long as it comes in the form of a show on the television. The answer to this is simple. We just need to trust and obey. Some of our older members may know and probably love that hymn the same way that I do. Trust and obey. Simple. Trust and obey. You don't have to understand. My daughter Patience often asks me why whenever I tell her to do something. Why? 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 You don't have to know why. Parents, you know. Just go do what I tell you to do and trust that I love you and that I'm telling you to do something good for my own wise purposes. Notice the contrast here between the demons that we studied last week in verse 25 or two weeks ago, and the leper in today's text. In verse 25, Jesus encounters an unclean spirit and commands it to be silent. And what does the spirit do? He obeys. But notice here that Jesus heals this leper, and the man does not obey, even though Jesus has commanded him to be silent. Isn't that so typical of us as fallen creatures God tells each one of the billions of stars to go to its place in the sky, and the stars obey. God tells the rivers to run their course, and they run it. God tells the mountains to be raised up to where they are in the elevations, and they stop at exactly the place that He commands. He is sovereignly ruling and guiding and moving every atom in existence in this entire universe, and He does it all by the will of the power of His might, and they obey. And God calls us trust and obey, and we say no, and we disobey. Isn't that so typical of us? Even as Christians, that is all too often our experience. One of the reasons why we pray a prayer of confession here every Sunday is because we just want to be honest about our sin. Even as Christians, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing better, that we shouldn't be growing in holiness, but we should be honest that, man, we sinned this week, and we just want to acknowledge that before God. We have not obeyed as we ought to, even after Jesus has touched us and healed us and cleansed us and loved us in the way that he has. The end of today's text, in the second half of verse 45, says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. Notice the contrast here. The story begins with a leper who lives outside of the camp. The leper lives out in the desolate places. And Jesus was on the inside. But as the story comes to a close, it's Jesus who is on the outside and the leper who's on the inside. The leper who had to live outside of the camp, separated from the people of God because of his impurity, has been made pure and reunited with his people and made whole. But Christ who had no impurity in him at all, is now out in the desolate places. Once again, Christ is in the wilderness. This is the kindness of our Savior towards us. He takes our place, and he puts us in his place. Ultimately, Christ took our place on the cross 
where we deserved to die a criminal's death. And he gave us his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, all credited to our account. When you read this story, I don't know who you identify with, but I hope it's the leper. And I hope you understand what God has done for you in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your loving, healing touch. We thank you for coming to us, for being with us, for being willing to touch us, to make us whole and to make us holy. I pray that as we go out for the rest of the week that you would enable us to live that reality out in our lives. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.